Did you, do you want to kick this off? Do you, yeah, do you I was to... going to, and I, conf- I forgot the name of the podcast. <laughs> hello, and, hello and welcome to Mistakes Are Made with yeah, me, Chris Lowley. That's, honestly, that's that it. That bit should be yeah. fine. Okay. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Mistakes Were Made with me, Chris Lowley. And me, Alex Steger. So, as always, I've brought things back to football. Soccer, sorry, we always have to do the soccer disclaimer, Alex. Apologies. Um, probably bored of me saying that. Don't apologise to me. Apologise to the British people. Um, no, um, obviously we have an audience in both the US and the UK. So we all know what we're talking about here. It's a game with a circular ball that you kick with your feet. And why, why are we talking about this today, Chris? Well, we're good. Thank you for bringing it back. So we are talking about it today. So our guest is Mark Warburton, who at the time of recording, and we will get on to the precarious nature of the job, is the manager, head coach of Queen's Park Rangers, a team based in London. He for the benefit of this podcast, though, is also interesting because he was a very big currency trader before moving into football. Exactly. And uh, we interviewed him effectively about both. Uh, we wanted to know some of the bigger investment mistakes he had made as a trader. But then also we were, you know, let's be honest here, we were interested in finding out about the mistakes that professional sports people make. We've all seen the stats. It's ridiculous numbers of people who were in varying professional sports, whether whether NFL, NBA or soccer in the UK, go on to, unfortunately, uh, you know, not have a lot of money in the future. I, I think I can't remember the numbers now and I should have had them to hand, but sort of very high statistics for bankruptcies. Well, that's why I find Mark so interesting because he was in the world of football. I mean, we'll get onto this, but he, he was a professional footballer or training to be at least. He then decided to move into the city. He took on some really high profile jobs. He's obviously a very smart man because he was dealing with huge amounts of money at RBS and AIG on their trading desks. And then he decides, you know what? I'm going to go back to football. I'm going to coach under 13s, which just seems mad now. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's the other, you know, big, big part of this interview is talking about that mistake or not a mistake, but decision that that, that could very well have been a mistake, you know, turning your back on a relatively, uh, or in fact, very sort of comfortable lifestyle, guaranteed job, you know, decent level of income, um, and uh, everything that goes with that, and deciding, yeah, to be out on the training pitch initially with children, maybe then reserve teams. You know, he talks about being in a in a mini bus that broke down somewhere on the motorway in the rain, sort of wondering, hey, have I made the right decision? And he also, we get to this, he made this switch at forty two. You know, it wasn't, you know, five years in the city and then. And then off to pursue his dream. It was, you know, wife, kids, a lot of responsibility at that point. So um, we, we delve into that. Well, to show you how precarious it is, I did do some research. I think I mentioned this to you before. For the division that he's in, the average career span is one year, one week and two days. And that's a manager. down every year as a manager. Yeah. So he's now been there for two and a half years, which... It seems like an outlier, which is absolutely insane. We did this interview back in January. Yeah, end of January. Um, we did. We do a few of these in advance. It may not sound like it, but we plan ahead. Um, and we were going to run this uh, a little bit later, but there were concerns as to whether by the time we ran it, Mark was still going to be in a job. A couple mm-hmm. of weeks ago, it was looking pretty dicey. And luckily, Mark's still around. But it, it does go to show just how, how precarious this is. Even when you've effectively made it, you're managing one of the sort of 40 biggest teams in the UK. Uh, you, you think you, you, you've done it, you've got to the top. And, and even then, uh, it, it's not safe. So uh, big decisions from him. And he talks about them really well. Absolutely. Well, I think we should get onto it because we, we delve into that precarious nature in a lot of detail. He speaks very eloquently about it. He's obviously very aware of 
the job, the world that he's active in and the world that he came from. And, and he's very good at marrying those two things. So without further ado, here's Mark Warburton. Let's jump in. So it's Mistakes Were Made is the name of the podcast. And we're coming at this from a slightly different angle because you're in the world of professional football. But before that, you're in the world of investing. So let's start with that. From an investment point of view, can we rewind? What was the biggest mistake you made in the investing world? What did you do about it? Well, in truth, from an investor perspective, Chris, I was in the spot foreign exchange markets. So we were we were buying and selling currencies, hundreds, if not thousands of trades a day. You know, average turnover for the desk might be $20, 25000000000 billion at the time going across the various currencies. So an individual would do two, two and a half billion quite comfortably. So in terms of, of individual mistakes or major mistakes, it's more a case of trying to get seven out of 10 right. And, and that law applies in recruiting players now in professional football. If you, you're going to make mistakes day in, day out, if you can limit those mistakes, and as I say, you get a seven out of 10, six and a half out of 10 right on most occasions, then you're going to be in a good place. Without getting you to focus on a, one of those three out of 10 events, was there any that stood out? Was there any that make your palms sweaty thinking back on? No, it was probably one of the biggest days and, and a very good day in the end. But then you look back, it's one of the biggest days when I think it was a long-term capital in in, Hong, in um, Japan when they liquidated. And, and dollar yen moved, if I remember rightly, from 121.5 to 110.5 at a record day movement and closed the day all the way back up at 118, 119. It was an incredible movement where... The yen was obviously brought home um, and we had unprecedented movements within the currency. Um, and we had an early inquiry. I remember someone out of the desert at the Middle East asked for a Swiss yen. It was 500 million. And it was like, where did that come from at this time of the morning? And you recognize now the events that happened and led up to this huge movement. Um, and we had a good day. We had a very good day. We, we had a lot of the market and, and it was, a, you know, at the end of it, profit wise, a very good day. But without being greedy, you look back and you think, if I'd have recognised some of those smaller signs, what we could have done on that day. I mean, bearing in mind a busy day might be one and a half big figures. We've gone down 11, 12 big figures and back up nine again in, in the course of a day. So it was, a, it was incredible to be part of that day, to be quoting yen. I was at Namur at the time. So a big Japanese trading house. Um, so very privileged to be in that position. But you do look back and think, what if? So maybe not answering your question properly but maybe looking at not maximising what was a fantastic opportunity. One of those amazing opportunities that you look back on and think, if only I'd, re I'd recognise the signs at half, six, seven in the morning. But that's life. We had a good day. Many people got hurt that day and we, we emerged with our heads held high, but it could have been so much better. In that world, which I appreciate isn't your world now, what, 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 what did a bad day look like? You know, and, and what, were the, what, what were the kind of things that could lead to that, like that you could control? It was, a, I don't want to bore you here, Alex, but it was a case of, um, you look back in your career and you realise, I was. I started off in a smaller bank. I started off in a small regional, what was, what was called North Carolina National Bank, NCMB, that became Nations Bank and Bank of America, et cetera. And it grew over the years. But at the time, it was a very small operation. I spent a couple of years in Charlotte, North Carolina. And you, again, you, I'm not saying you were self-taught, but they were very small minnows within the market. And it wasn't until later on when you move to a bigger bank and you realize you start to understand the market better. You wouldn't recognize the, the hedge funds coming in or the models coming in. We never heard of them because we never had them as customers. So it's almost that early exposure prepared you for a lesser market. And once you tasted life in a bigger, let's say life in a faster lane, you wanted more of it and you want to understand it better, understand what moved the markets and the indicators, et cetera. So it was very much in the second half of my trading career. I was very fortunate to to get headhunted and go and work in some of the bigger banks, 
uh, and you get exposed then to, the, to some of the big market flows. And it really is a different world. It's, it's a different world and how it all ties up and the communication within the various desks and the option markets and, and the whole dealing room working together for the common cause. And, and that was, for me, was a real eye-opener and, and one that I thoroughly enjoyed and wish it happened earlier. Well, it seems like something you're very passionate about, Mark, and I'm going to cards on the table here. Part of the reason I approached you is I try and turn everything to football if I can. And I saw the history and I saw it made sense. It's a good thing to try and bring across. But if, it sounds like you were in a good position. You were you were enjoying it, if I'm understood correctly. What led to the leap for football? I, I appreciate that was probably your first love. But what led to that leap and how hard a transition was that? Um, how long have you got, Chris? Um, I think it was... It's, <laughs> it's more how long have you got, to be fair. <laughs> yeah. I think... Um, I think you're I, busier I, than us, Mark. Well, I did professional football from, from school. I left at 16 to be a young apprentice professional at Leicester City. So I love the game. I love sport. I was very fortunate to be good at sports. I found myself in the, in the city. And as you quite rightly say, Chris, I loved it. I thoroughly enjoyed the competitive nature of the financial markets. Of course, we know they've changed now since 2008. But at the time, right the way through from you know, 1979, 1980, right the way through, a fantastic time to be in the markets. It was so competitive, so busy. You got to travel the world and work in various centres. I really enjoyed that. And it wasn't until I, I, was, I was married and my, my uh, two children, my, my son was youngest. And I think in, I'd gone, wherever I'd worked in the world, I'd worked in Charlotte and I coached. I coached the bank team. I coached a young girls team. I coached a high school team. I coached a college team. I worked in Chicago and likewise coached a variety of different age groups in soccer and be it, you know, young children, be it older children, be it adults. I was always coaching purely from the point of view that, without being rude, if you, if you spoke with an English accent, they just presumed you knew soccer. So everyone basically took you to coach the team. Um, and I enjoyed that. Yeah, no, I mean, like, I... I live in New York and I'm, 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 you know, I'm, I'm dining out on that regularly. You know, I have, to, I, I could say pretty anodyne observation to people like, oh man, this guy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I just say stuff like, oh, he's, he's not very good at crossing it, is he? And they're like, oh, go listen to him. Right, yeah. <laughs> you can imagine, Alex, this was in, I was in Charlotte in 1984. So go back a few years and you can imagine how it was then. And, but it opened doors, you know, I, I played for the local pro team in, in Charlotte and, and the bank sponsored the pro team, that type of thing. So we, we had a, a really good relationship. It wasn't until I came back to um, to the UK, 98, after Chicago, that I realised that there were badges and qualifications. It, so, it sounds so ignorant now. I had no idea what a UEFA coaching badge would look like. Um, but my son, it coincided with my son, you know, he was born in 93. By the time he was eight and nine, um, Arsenal Watford wanted to take him as a young, a young academy player. So they asked my background, you know, I played pro football, Watford had no money, would you mind helping out? And suddenly I found myself coaching for a professional club. And it was like lighting a blue touch paper. That drive and enjoyment and passion you had in the financial markets, I found transferring over to a different world, Chris. You know, and, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Now at this time, I've got a very senior position at RBS, a huge bank at the time. We had a great dealing team, some top class individuals on the desk, privileged to be in that position. And it came, the, the, the shining moment came when I, I would go and leave early. I'd get in the, into the dining room at, say, quarter to six in the morning. And I arranged on a couple of nights a week to leave at half four, quarter to five to get to Watford training. And about quarter past four, a huge dolly yen trade came in. A big, big dolly yen trade came in, which is the kind of trade you'd wait all your, you know, you get twice a year or something. And I'm sitting there, I was on a piece of paper, I kid you not, I was doing a passing drill for the under-13s. And I was going, like, X1 passes to Y1 and Y1. I'm literally doing this with a bit of paper. And they're asking for this trade. There must have been a five-second delay before I went back to them. It felt like about five minutes. 
And I'm thinking, this is crazy. Now, the whole dealing room reacted to this trade. We had a good evening, good after, late afternoon, helped with New York. I missed trading. I didn't get home till late. It was a really big trade. But all I was thinking about was I missed training. And it's bizarre. It's under 13s at Watford. And so I was it's just like, a change in mindset then, Mark? Was, was, that, just, was that the sort of watershed moment? Yeah, it really was. It was thinking, what do I want to do now for the rest of my working life, so to speak? And I've always been competitive. I'm sure we all are. All you guys are the same. Uh, and you're competitive and you want to channel that that passion, that desire into something. But I, I suddenly found myself taking coaching badges and I was I was lucky to be okay at it. I got through the, what you call level ones, two, onto the B license quickly, three, onto my A license, which is the second highest qualification in, in world football. I did that. Um, and suddenly I'm working now more and more and, and I get offered a full-time role in football. And now you've got that moment and I literally take a huge pay cut massive pay cut i'm in a good stable position i've got a nice almost guaranteed bonus and my wife thought i'd gone absolutely nuts if i to find a more technical expression but she really did and, and with full justification she looked at me what what are you doing um you know and it, and it was that moment chris and if you don't if you don't you know yourself if you don't do it at that time you're never going to do it and, and i literally gave myself 10 years i've been lucky to put a bit of money aside and um i, I was offered this job first of all and then in terms of preparation and readiness I wanted. I knew I needed to know more, so I spent just a take, year. Take, and the, the way you used to hold, call back. Taking a step back just for a moment. So, so you were how old at this point? Uh, it was, this, this would have been in two thousand and four. So I'd be tw- I'd be forty two years old. And and the job you've been offered was in the academy at Watford Football Club. Now, got it. Okay. Yeah, you know, you're going to look at it and say you're going to leave a senior position in a bank like RBS to go and work at Watford Football Club. And as bizarre as that may sound. Um, I gave myself 10 years to, to do something in the game. Now, I put some money aside. I remember we used to cold call banks for business. I remember being at that, that small bank I mentioned. I used to cold call the Tokyo banks every day. And it wasn't until I irritated the, the life out of one of them that he finally dealt with me. And that's I all, it all kicked off in the end. Um, and I used the same tactics phoning the football clubs. And I phoned every club you could imagine in Europe, from the Barcelona and Bayern Munich down to the smaller clubs. And I was just, I was basically, I'd ignored until finally one guy at Sporting Lisbon, a guy called Diogo Matos, who now works for FIFA and a dear friend, said, if you can get over and play golf, I'll give you five hours of my time. And I jumped on an EasyJet flight, got over there, played golf with him. He invited me to stay for the week and watch Sporting Lisbon train and how they work. That became two weeks. I was flying home at weekends to get my gear and go back again. And suddenly you're in the midst of a, a learning environment where... Charismo and Ronaldo and Figo and these type of players all came through. Diogo had himself played for Portugal, played for Sporting, and we just got on great. We're still, as I say, dear friends now. But he then opened the door to Ajax, and I spent a week at Ajax. Who opened the door to Barcelona, and I'm not spending time at Barcelona. Who opened the door to Bayern Munich, and onto and so on. And it was just getting that first door, and very similar to the Tokyo Trading Banks. I had one bank in Tokyo. BHF, who finally dealt with me, and I had to do a big trade for him and probably broke all the trade limits at the time, but did it. And that opened the door to every other Japanese bank. And so the similarities were quite remarkable. Even though you're, you're, you know, you're in that sort of nice position and you start to get these, these referrals and stuff, but it's still quite early in your yes. transition to you know, football management at this point. You know, you're still a, uh, a relatively junior coach at Watford, right? Rather than you know, w- yes, what you absolutely. are today. Um, you gave yourself this 10 years, but, but, but were there points, you know, um, within that 10 years or, you know, even in these early stages where you're like, 
hang on. Like, you know, you, you've got your wife in your ear telling you, you're politely, um, you know, the, the version that you're, uh, the, the, that you're nuts. Um, you know, were there points in those early years, even when you're with Ajax, Lisbon, you know, but at Watford, where you're like, hang on, like, have, have I made a big mistake here? Like, you know. Um, yeah, Alice, that's a great question. If I can answer that in two ways, if you don't mind. Firstly, um, I, when you go into this world of professional football, they, these guys are like traders. The, the number of similarities are quite incredible to working in a dealing room environment, to working in a dressing room environment. You've got 12, 10, 12, 15, 20 guys. High, you know, at, at the time, the city was dominated by males. It's obviously changed, thankfully, but at the time it was male heavy, um, very competitive, testosterone filled. If you did well, you got your bonus and everything off the next year. If you didn't, you lost your job. It's football. It's exactly the same as a dressing room. Someone asked to do an autobiography and wanted to call it dealing room to dressing room. And it was so relevant. Um, so what I had was I had, a, I had a world that these guys liked. It was a highly competitive financial world. And they were intrigued. When I was at Watford, for example, Lady Boothroyd was the manager. And AD asked me to present on the city. I did a two-hour presentation. And I didn't realise, I'm talking to you guys and about my world, that I just thought would be boring the, the pants off of them. And they absolutely loved the idea of billions of dollars and what happened and these guys. And then, I, you know, later on down the line, I took the Brentford team. We were playing Millwall and I took them into um, HSBC dealing room. And my good friend, to be my old trainee, was now global head of trading of HSBC. And he showed them round. And the look of awe on these professional players' faces, realising that, A, this world was highly competitive as well as theirs. But the rewards were enormous in comparison. So I had that hook all the time throughout, and I still have that hook now because I've never had the career that some of these guys uh, have had. The other side of your question is yes, absolutely. Uh, Sean Dyche, who's now Burnley manager, is a dear friend. Um, we worked together in the academy. He, I was academy director by this day. He was my youth team coach. Sean and I worked closely together. And I think we were in a minibus one day. We had a flat tyre. It's lashing down with rain. And I'd had a call from a major corporate to come and be take over the foreign exchange desk and I'm sitting there with rain dripping off my neck I'm looking at Sean what are we doing here and he was thinking, <laughs> were you tempted oh Chris you've no idea you've no idea I and I, I laughingly said to him I got his offer and he went I won't say the exact words that he used that'd be you gone was basically what he said um but it wasn't I mean I knew- I, I, it sounds like a couple of hours in a bus with Sean Dyche will do that to anyone you know oh. <laughs> that was such a low blow Alex He's a he's a top man, Alex. But I've got to say that was the moment to answer your question properly. That was the moment when I thought, "What on earth am I doing? I can literally ten times my salary here overnight, the guaranteed massive position into it." And it was soon enough after me leaving to say that I could quickly adapt back to it. You know, and then after that, when you say no to that, then you know you've almost closed the door because the market was changing, the personnel were changing, your contacts were moving on, and. And everything, the world was a world that no longer existed for you or to you. Um, but that was the moment. I hope that answers your question, Alex. But that really was the moment for me. Now, I was going to say, Mark, because you talked about the dressing room and the mentality and, and dealing with the dressing room. And there's never been more money than there is in football. And I know QPR is at a different level than perhaps it was a few years ago in terms of the money. But it's still, people are well paid. Yeah. How much do you overhear players talking about sort of investment decisions and do you ever get tempted to give them investment advice not, because not regulated seen, advice mind just, not regulated uh, advice but we've seen like no. this boom in i mean today as we're talking nfts are in the spotlight with the premier league so is that something that's coming up on your radar 
Yeah, one of our players bought some art NFT recently, and um, you know they talk. They, I hear players suddenly talking about blockchain, and I'm looking at it going, listen, be very careful. Make sure you understand what you're investing in. The truth of the matter, Chris, is um, these guys are looked after by agents quite naturally. Um, the agents have the financial arms and, and their investment advice, and a lot of these players are very, very well looked after. Um, I remember uh, not not well. It was a few years ago now. I can't give enough details, but one of our national teams, um, a very senior national team, wanted advice where they're going to put their players' bonus. And I got them in touch with a major US investment bank, access to a closed fund, and they didn't do it. And they didn't do it because of the uncertainty. It would have been an absolute no-brainer. God knows where their money would have been now. It, it was been superb for them. But it was that uncertainty of what to do. It's a different world. And that made me realise that these guys need to understand more. So I, I really encourage... Uh, uh, young players, you can't give advice. It's hard enough to do that when you've got with the screens information around you, let alone when you're at a training ground. But you can talk to them about how the market operates and what they need, the questions they need to ask their agents or financial advisors uh, and where they should be looking to spread their money and a basket of risk as opposed to all eggs in one basket. And all the stuff that you guys know inside out and listen to day in, day out. But it's, it's amazing that these guys are very well paid. Um, and a lot of them are very well looked after. Some, unfortunately, like any any walk of life, don't get the same advice. Yeah, because you do you hear these um, sort of horror stories, I guess. Well, there's some stats, aren't there? I don't know. Um, in the US, there's some stats about the numbers. I, I, I don't have the numbers in front of me. But, but you know, like a really high percentage of the ex-NFL players who end up bankrupt within like, you know, 10 years of retiring. Ditto Premier League players. And there's some sort of some sad stories, uh, you know, uh, as to how that happens. Um, I remember, I don't know if you ever read this, Mark, there used to be this column in The Guardian called The Secret Footballer. I don't know if you ever um, read that back I in the day. Part of, I was interviewed for that one day, yes. Yeah, okay, cool. Well, I, well, when we finish who is he? you can tell us who it was, right? But, um, and there was, I remember in this column all about it, and he'd written about uh, investments and sort of something where he sort of gave this anecdote about uh, effectively someone's agent just sort of walking into the dressing room and, and, and effectively sort of raising money from, from, from sort of 10 players in the space for about 20 minutes for some sort of, you know, real estate project, which may or may probably almost definitely not have been a, <laughs> a good investment. And um, yeah, just d d does that stuff still sort of, go I mean, I guess that was probably sort of mid early 2000s. Does that sort of still go on? Is it, you know, it, it sounds like maybe it's a little less sketchy than it was these days? Yeah, I think it's got a little bit more, a little bit more uh, updated. Um, but I think I, I can remember back when it, it was the, the movie scheme, the film scheme, where the guys are so much money on the tax. Oh, you know yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember one, a broker, my best broker, Johnny, saying to me, there's this movie scheme. And it, what, what happens is you put this amount in and you get your tax back and then you get this back. And I said, Johnny, that, that sounds too good to be true. And it literally got busy that afternoon. It kicked off in our currency and nothing more was said. But then I realized two or three months later, loads of guys had done it. I thought nothing of it at all. And jump forward years later, and I'm suddenly with my good friend, Davey Weir, who's an outstanding footballer and, and he was my assistant manager, but a top individual. And he was speaking about the guys who had lost so much money in tax bills and the film scheme. And I realized it was the same film scheme and some of the city guys were having to pay back the tax chunks of tax. I mean, they had, it, it was no like pay over back over five years. It was, you have three months to pay X million pounds back. Uh, US style, IRS, pay it today. Yeah. And it really was, Alex, it was, 
you know, very famous household names. Bankrupt. Yeah, for Alex Ferguson was in, and Sven, I think. Yeah, Rio involved. Ferdinand as yeah. well, I think, was involved. Oh, there was so, so many big household names because it's one of those things where you don't do it, you go, what a fool, why do I not do that? But then you look back now and you just go, and it is too good to be true. It probably is, to use the old saying. Um, but absolutely, yeah. as you say, many city friends of mine were, were seriously, seriously caught in that, in, that, in that one scheme. Football people are still working now. They should be comfortable living a life of Riley. They're not. They're still doing TV work, just trying to get some money in because they've suffered so badly through that. So in, that was what it was. Now, you're right. The herd mentality still exists. There's no doubt. You go into a dressing room and if all you guys do it, and I'm sitting on my own going, I should, I should do some of this. I mean, you got guys on 100 grand a week or 150 a week or 80 grand, huge, huge money. You know, what What do they do? So that's where the, the financial advisors, their agents need to be strong and they need to be very prudent and very astute in what they do. And I'm glad to say a lot of them are very good. They are very good indeed. But it's the rogue agents you get and the, you know, the, the get rich quick schemes and buy this property. You know, the, I remember the Palm in Dubai. You can't go wrong. You can't go wrong. Bang. And it's one of this the, is this is one of Alex's favorite stories is is the Palm in Dubai. He he brought it up in another podcast that was completely unrelated. I'm told I'm not allowed to bring the story up, so I'm not going to. But <laughs> no, but Alex, like you can know, you know where I'm coming from, and I remember when that was first being launched, and you have to get in now, and if you don't get in now, you're going to miss the window. And I'm not saying it was aggressive selling, but it really what well, it made you feel like, geez, it's look at look at the place. How can it fail? But it's like anything. And, and as I say, from terms of advice, I, I, I really hope the young guys, because they are they are very privileged. They're, I mean, they're very talented. Don't get me wrong. These guys, you're getting paid to play football for a living. Uh, of all the millions around the world to play football, you're a very talented individual, full stop. But of course, when, when the more you improve and when you go from, I hear people say, oh, that player's only on five a week. It's a quarter of a million pound a year, basic. And I've had to stop players in the past and say, what do you mean only five a week? What do you mean only three a week? I've had to say that to them. And you think back to the city, you know, where they would take things for granted. Um, so you need a realisation of where the world really is. But these guys need to understand their career, unlike the trading career, can be very short. And they've got to maximise their time. Their window of opportunity is far smaller than the new guys, for example. So you hope very much that you make the most of it. And as a, as a sort of uh, a, a fiat currency trader, what you know, what are your views on um, you know cryptocurrencies, digital currencies, and things? Do you I mean do you, uh, do you, yeah you know as someone who's you know done done the real thing for for a long time? And when you hear players talking about this and maybe using some terms that you might have used and things, does it does it fill you with dread? It does a little bit, Alex. I may I may sound horribly antiquated and the dinosaur here speaking to you guys, but. I hear a lot of the younger guys now talking about NFTs and everything else. And right, so you bought a piece of art. Can you look at the art? Not sure if I can. Okay, right. So what? how does a blockchain inter- impact you? Um, my agent said it's good for me. That's not enough. That's not enough for me. And I just said to them, I think the biggest mistake you can make is, is a little knowledge is a very dangerous thing. And you've got to understand what you're investing in. And for me, my knowledge isn't deep enough. I understand it. But my knowledge isn't deep enough to go in there and aggressively, A, advise or B, invest myself. So you do bits and pieces, obviously, but I, I don't, for me, I just find it a world where they've got to have a greater understanding of the product they're investing in. And right now there's too many offshoots everywhere, left, right and centre, that people are jumping on. So all they ever hear is a get-rich-quick story. And you and I have all had that story so many times before. Go back to the palm. 
So I, I just try and advise them. But I must admit, I hear it more and more now that they're investing in areas they have absolutely no idea what's going on. Um, I think it was Brendan Rogers who said that being a football manager is like trying to build an aeroplane while it's in flight. Yes. It's that level of stress and challenge that you have to face. Brendan was, uh, I worked with Brendan at, at Watford. He was manager. I was a kind of director. Obviously, he was at Celtic. I was at Rangers. So we came across in the old firm games. And so a, a man I know very well and respect enormously. Um, but yeah, very much so. Because the difference between the city and football is the emotional side. It means what it means to the fans. And that's the one area that is very, very easily forgotten by people. Um, oh, they're both high-pressure environments. They're both highly competitive. Yes, they are. So many points of synergy. But not when the trader goes to work in his in his bank, and the, these guys, excuse me, uh, and these guys go to work in front of twenty thousand people, and their whatever they do on that pitch is then scrutinised by social media and and journalists and whatever. There's a difference. So when someone says to me, "Why does that guy get paid X grand a week?" Because that's what he does. You guys go to work and you do your job, and and these guys go on a pitch in front of twenty five, thirty, forty, fifty thousand people. And every single thing is scrutinised. I appreciate we've taken up a lot of your time, Mark. And, and only one last thing to finish on, and it might be a long, difficult question. But what's the tougher job, do you reckon? Being the England manager or being the governor of the Bank of England? England manager. <laughs> All day long. Not, not through significance or importance, Chris. Just simply through the fact, as you know, imagine what... I, I, I know Gareth and um, enjoyed his company. Imagine everything he does has the country looking at what goes on, the squad that he picks, the team that he picks, you know, is the, the waistcoat tactics. that he wears. Yeah, everything. everything. Yeah. Alex, you're dead right. He can wear the wrong colour waistcoat. Why is he wearing brown shoes? Because why is he wearing brown shoes? It's just anything that he does is in the spotlight. So he lives under a scrutiny. Um, but I think, you know, there you go, someone who conducts their business and goes about their business so remarkably professionally. Bank of England governor, God, what a huge job, the implications, but he does his job privately while Gareth is out there in the spotlight. So there we go, Mark Warburton. Alex, what do you think? Oh, I mean, you know, really interesting. Look, Chris, you know that, that I share your uh, passion for trying to turn our job writing about finance into a job writing about sport. So it was, it was, it was fun to talk to him, you know. But yeah, in terms of his investment mistake, you know, I thought what was very interesting there was it was all about missed opportunity, wasn't it? It was about not reading what an earlier trade could have then meant for things that were going to play out later in the day. And, you know, yes, they, you know, they did very well out of it. They made money for themselves, for their clients. But but actually, you know, his overriding feeling at the end of that was, well, we, we could have done more. We left something on the table. And I think... It then, when you hear that, it makes an awful lot of sense that he then moved into sport and he has the mind frame and competitiveness to sort of be a sports uh, coach as he is now and have been a player. Because I think that sort of attitude is, you know, one of com- competition, but also one of like, you know, did we maximise our opportunities? Did, did did we leave something out there? Well, he talked a lot about the testosterone in both, which I thought, I mean, you get the old world image of like the city traders all barking at each other and the sort of group mentality of a locker room, changing room. He didn't quite break the omerta of what goes on in a changing room. We did try and push him on that. What are they talking about at the moment? Glimpse of, of NFTs and property deals. He almost, almost got into your uh, your favourite anecdote. My Travis Sinclair the, story. Your Travis Sinclair yeah. story. The famous even, Travis Sinclair story. Breaking story, case of emergency. Something I read once, uh, which I think for the listeners, we'll, we'll spare them this. Guys, if you're interested... We should tease e- it forever and never say it. Email me. And I will, I'll record a voice message for you um, and you can play it on your birthday. 
Um, but otherwise, yeah, look, I thought it was very interesting. You know, obviously, we know that as we touched on in the, in the introduction and in the interview, you know, a lot, a lot of players do make mistakes with their investments for various reasons. I think largely being young and having too much money, which, you know, is a, is, is a heady combination. Uh, we touched on we've NFTs and we've been young. Um, yeah, I mean, one we've, out of we've two. Had half of it. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's interesting, isn't it? You know, obviously he, sp- he spoke about sort of some art deals and things, or NFTs. I think is what he was getting at there. Crypto clearly is sort of a whole new avenue for these players. I think obviously before it used to be very much about sort of gambling, property schemes, uh, and he touched on this big sort of tax scheme, which was a big issue in the UK. And I, I want to say, sort of maybe going back about ten years now. Yeah, I think so. It was around that sort of time. It was huge news of all these, a lot of celebrities, a lot of sports people were drawn into it, weren't Jimmy they? Carr got hit in it, didn't he? He got caught in it. Um, and there's Sven, Alex Ferguson. So yeah, not not small names. But I think one thing that really struck me, and I mean, it was the final point, but it, I just thought it was an interesting thing, was the question of, would you rather be the governor of the Bank of England or which is the tougher job, governor of the Bank of England or manager of the football team? He didn't even blink. And I think that just came down to, I don't know if that's because he's been institutionalized by the world of sport or just how tough that job really is. But the fact that he thinks it, it is that tough just shows he went from a very competitive environment to an ultra competitive environment. But it's still quite nice. Is that a nice, is that a weird thing to say? No, I think I think it's important, isn't it? I mean, I think he made these big life changing decisions. Uh, he, you know, he probably still has left a lot, you know, in terms of, you know, his only mistake, leaving something on the table. I mean, Financially, I imagine he's still leaving a decent amount on the table despite being pr- pretty well paid as a, as a manager and stuff. And so, yeah, for, to sort of be cool with it all and accept your fate. And yeah, to your point, Chris, you know, the governor of the Bank of England tends to stay in his job for more than whatever the stat was, one year, yeah, two one months, year, and, one and week, a week, two days. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, for, the fi- for the stability of the financial system, that's probably a good thing. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, you know, clearly big risk. Nice to talk to him. And, you know, fingers crossed that... Uh, by the time this comes out, he's he's still in his job and can enjoy listening to it. And on that note, it's goodbye from me, Chris Slowly. And goodbye from me, Alex Steger. Mm-hmm.